We will be continuing in our series in Job, Sovereign Suffering. Last Sunday, we studied the first part of Eliphaz's second speech in chapter 15, verses 1 through 16. That's where we focused. That's where we saw Eliphaz give a cruel and inaccurate analysis of everything that Job had basically said this far, thus far. According to Eliphaz, we learned Job's words were empty and dangerous and crafty and arrogant. They were hurtful to his friends, hurtful to their culture in a sense, and ultimately unrealistic. We learned that the world says the same things about the gospel because the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing, uh, but to those who are being saved, to born-again believers, the gospel is the power of God. In an attempt to get Job to come to his senses, repent of his alleged hidden sin, and finally bring an end to his horrible suffering, Eliphaz switches direction and turns to scare tactics. He continues with a vivid and terrifying description of the miseries experienced by a wicked man. Since Eliphaz uses language that Job has already used of himself, this tells us that he was referring to Job and not generalizing. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 15. We'll be looking at the rest of the chapter in verses 17 through 35. Once again, Job chapter 15, verses 17 through 35. We are going to look at four things this morning. We're going to look at the foundation for Eliphaz's strong warning, the fears of the wicked man, the folly of the wicked man, and the fate of the wicked man. All of these things are illustrated in the text. I think it's befitting that we pray once more before we get to work. Father, we acknowledge your presence and your glory, and we now submit ourselves to you and to your word. We pray that you teach us about these things that we're about to read and study. We pray that you solidify them in our hearts and minds, that you help us to understand what the fears of the wicked man are, what the folly, the foolishness, and the fate of the wicked man, all of the things that are contained in this text, we pray that you unpack clearly for us so that we can understand. And uh, we pray for those who, if there be anyone here who does not yet know Christ as their Savior, that this would be the moment, that, uh, that point of impact where your Spirit does that work in their heart. For the rest of us, we pray that you sanctify us, but ultimately we pray that you are glorified now during this time. Teach us as we humbly submit to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll begin with that first F. This is where we left off last, last Sunday. Number one, the foundation for Eliphaz's strong warning. We see this in verses 17 through 19. This is the next thing he says after basically dismissing everything Job had said so far. Eliphaz says this, I will show you, hear me. And what I have seen, I will declare, see the parenthetical there in verse 18, what wise men have told without holding it from their fathers, to whom alone the land was given, and no stranger passed among them. The foundation for Eliphaz's strong warning in the rest of the section here is really kind of a twofold foundation. First, it's part 
personal experience. In other words, what he's going, how he's going to warn Job in, in the rest of the text here, his foundation for that is coming from his own personal experiences, what he's seen and heard himself. He literally says this. This is how we know it's personal experience. What I have seen, you can put it in quotes or underline it. It's as if he's speaking from personal experience. Eliphaz is claiming to have seen with his own eyes the bitter judgment and travails that befall wicked men, those who do evil deeds, those who refuse to repent. It's coming from personal experience here. And now he might have been speaking about a season in his own life where, you know, maybe before he was a believer, if he was a believer at all, or maybe he just went through a period where he was very rebellious against God and he was kind of a, a wicked man in a sense, and then travail and misery and suffering came upon him. He could have been speaking from personal experience, but I, I doubt that someone like Eliphaz would peel away the, the veneer of his own piety to expose past or present weaknesses. He's not the type of person who's going to... He may have had personal experiences, but he's not going to speak about his own personal foibles. Have you ever met somebody like that? Yeah, they're out there. They're in the church. They seem to be perfect, right? They, they point out things in other people's lives. They speak from experience, but they're not candid about themselves. They won't speak about their own foibles and struggles. Not that we should focus on those things a whole lot, but it sure makes sense to me when somebody is transparent and honest instead of acting perfect. So I don't think he was speaking from personal experience in his own life, but maybe, just maybe he was, but I doubt it. He was just too self-righteous for that kind of attitude and behavior. In any, in any case, he does claim to have seen what he's going to describe in the following, these things about wicked people and what they go through. I've seen it with my own eyes, he says. Second part of his foundation is tradition. We see this in, in, in the quote here, wise men have told. It's as if wise men have passed down this tradition of witnessing these sorts of things, this wisdom about what happens with the wicked. Eliphaz claims that wise men, those who held their same beliefs, right, the same religious beliefs of Eliphaz, rewards and retribution, he's claiming that, that those of old, those men of bygone ages who had the same tradition, same religion, who lived in that particular region before Job and his friends did, long before the land had become theologically compromised before strangers, all those kinds of wise men who came before them, they would agree with what he is about to describe in the following text. So this is what I'm going to say to you, Job, is of the highest importance because I've seen it with my own eyes. And then what I'm going to describe to you is backed up by decades and decades and, and centuries of, of tradition and, and guys that had our religious beliefs, and they've all witnessed and seen what happens to wicked people. So you, you, better, you better listen up is what he's saying. In fact, Eliphaz is even going out further, kind of showing his self-righteousness and pride by really what he's doing is claiming to have received this information directly from past generations of wise men. It's not just things that he's heard, but you know what? I've known some wise people who lived before us, and they told me these things as well. In other words, it had, this information had been handed, handed down from one generation to the next over time, then it finally came to Eliphaz. What a special guy, right? Like, hey, we got to impart this information, this wisdom, this tradition 
to old mighty Eliphaz here. This is his attitude, his mentality here. So, you know, you better listen up. And verses 17 through 19 was really Eliphaz's way of saying, this is a paraphrase, Look, Job, I know from experience and tradition, which is rooted in the wisdom of bygone ages, that what I'm about to tell you regarding the wicked is well established and entirely true. So guess what? You better listen closely. You better take what I'm about to say very, very seriously. He is, in a sense, pulling rank on Job again because he is the oldest of the group there. We can move to the second L this is where he begins to describe the fears of the wicked man. Again, tradition has reported this. I've seen it with my own eyes. The fears of the wicked man is contained in verses 20 through 24. He says, The wicked man writhes in pain all his days, though all, his, or all the years that are laid up for the ruthless. Uh, dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer will come upon him. He does not believe that he will return out of darkness. And he is marked for the sword. He wanders abroad for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Distress and anguish terrify him. They prevail against him like a king ready for battle. According to Eliphaz, the wicked man in this text here has a miserable life, full of dread and distress, full of anguish. He says the wicked man writhes in pain, and the idea here is it's like a woman who's in hard labor. And he says all his days and through all his years. So he's got this miserable pain all his days, all his years, like a woman giving birth, like perpetual childbirth, which I don't think there's a woman in this room that would care to go through that. A few hours of it was horrific. Job used the same root word to describe himself. He was experiencing pain unsparing, he said, chapter 6, verse 10. The wicked man, he says, keeps hearing dreadful sounds in his ears, right? In other words, he is full of fears. And even when things seem to be going really well in prosperity, he dreads that suddenly the destroyer will come upon him and take away what he loves and maybe even what he's earned. It's interesting that Job expressed this exact same fear when he said, What I dread befalls me, chapter 3, verse 25. In other words... There were times when Job was a super wealthy man and a healthy man and had a lovely family. And everything. There were times where he, was, he struggled with great fear about losing all of that. And then at some point, he does lose all of it. And then he confesses, what I dreaded most happened to me. And Eliphaz says the wicked man knows in his heart that he is on a, a one-way path to darkness and that the sword is hanging over him. In other words, he is fearful that death and darkness will suddenly overcome him and there will be no return. Basically, the wicked man lives out all of his days with a fear of suddenly losing everything and sudden death and then darkness and whatever happens in that mysterious afterlife. And according to these guys, it was just you'd go down into Sheol and there'd be no return. Interestingly, Job felt these things about himself. He, he actually thought he was headed for Sheol. He thought that he would not return once he went there. He expressed this very clearly in chapter 7, verses 9 through 10. So we can see how Eliphaz is not generalizing. He's speaking of Job. He's playing off of what Job has confessed. Uh, the translation of verse 23 is, is reasonably uncertain. Uh, according to Christopher Ashe, the word where 
can be rendered vulture, like as in a vulture that goes around searching for roadkill. The word picture would then be of a vulture wandering around scavenging for food or of the wicked man wandering around like a piece of dead animal carcass about to be eaten by a vulture. So you've got this idea of the wicked man, according to Eliphaz's illustration, he just kind of wanders around like a vulture looking for the next best thing. Or he's a piece of carcass wandering around waiting to be eaten by a vulture. That's his fear of this kind of sudden, like I have no direction in my life, and then maybe this sudden attack in my life ends or things get actually worse. This is the picture he's painting for us. And then lastly, the wicked man, he says, is full of distress and anguish. Distress and anguish, he says, prevail against him and terrify him like a powerful king terrifies his enemies as both sides line up for battle. I was thinking of, um, I was thinking of the situation with the Israelites where you know, they would line up against enemy nations and, and sometimes they would be struck with great fear because those, those opposing kings and armies were, were pretty intimidating. And that's kind of the idea here. Think of like Goliath, where the whole Israelite army was like, we can't go out there against him. This short little shepherd dude named David goes out and takes him out. Kind of reminds me of myself. No, not really. I'm not that bold. But that's the idea here is that, you know, you have a king lining up against an army and, and fear for the wicked man. It's, it's like that. Everything is arrayed against him. He's always terrified of, of everything that can happen. And he has all this anguish and distress he can't get any rest. He's always worried about things. And, and in a parallel fashion, Job spoke about the anguish of his spirit. Chapter 7, verse 11. And he spoke about the terror he encountered at night. Chapter 7, verse 14. Again, Eliphaz is not generalizing. He's pulling from Job's own testimony. Eliphaz paints a frightening picture of the, the fears that, that plague the life of the wicked man. And what he stated fits frighteningly well with how Job has described his own state of mind. It was as if Eliphaz was saying, Job, you need to put two and two together. If you have these same fears and feelings, what does that say about your morality? What does that say about your standing before God? Fear and bad feelings are a sure indicator of bad character and sinful conduct. This is what he's trying to convey through this poetry to Job. That's the fears of the wicked man which are paralleled with the fears of Job. Number three, the folly of the wicked man. We see this in verses 25 through 28. Eliphaz says next, because he has stretched out his hand against God and defies the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with a thickly bossed shield, because he has covered his face with his fat and gathered fat upon his waist and has lived in desolate cities, in houses that none should inhabit, which were ready to become heaps of ruin, stop there. Eliphaz is describing really the the attitude and the behavior of the wicked man, the, the foolish things that he does. He foolishly stretches out his hand in opposition to God, and he deliberately defies God. This is a, a very accurate description of the wicked. 
Uh, he says the wicked man in his foolishness runs stubbornly against God with a shield in his hand. In other words, the wicked man wars against God. He does. Even when wicked people, wicked men don't realize they're warring against God, they are warring against God. Now, this is what, what Eliphaz is defining for us here. This is correct biblical anthropology, anthropology being the study of man or uh, a view of mankind. People are, now listen carefully, people are, they are naturally wicked. They are wicked by nature. And guess what? They war against God. They war against God. How do they do this? How do they war against God? Do they literally pick up a shield and sword and start swinging at the sky? No, nut jobs do that. That's not how they do it. They do it through their sin. They do it through their active disobedience. They do it through their rebellion against God. They do it through their suppression of the truth in their own unrighteousness. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wicked man, the natural man, he is at war with God. He is actually an enemy of God. Now, when we say wicked people, what are we talking about? We're talking about unbelievers. They are classified biblically as wicked. They have rejected Christ. They love their sin. They do wicked things. They are the wicked. Not only do they war against God, they are enemies of God. Romans 5.10 they are displeasing to God. Romans, or actually Psalm 14, verse 3, and I'm sure it says it somewhere in Romans. They are uh, what Jesus said. They are under condemnation, John 3, 18. In other words, the wicked man is condemned because he is wicked. And guess what? A right anthropology, biblically speaking, they are not seeking after God. The wicked man, the natural man, the man who is still dead in his sin, he does not seek after God. It says it in the Bible over and over, especially in Romans 3.11. So, so the natural man, the, the man who is still in his sin, the, the wicked man, the man who has not been regenerated, the man who does not believe, the unbelieving man, he is, at, he is at war with God through his sin, through his unrighteousness, through his suppression of truth. He is combating against God in many, many different ways. He is an enemy of God. He is displeasing. He is under condemnation. He is not a seeker of God. Guess what natural man seeks? Does he seek God? No, the Bible makes it clear. He seeks more sin. He seeks what makes his flesh happy. That's what he seeks after. Take it from personal experience. I was an unbeliever for over 30 years. I know exactly what the Bible teaches about this from personal experience. Now, Telling people, now this is where it gets really dangerous, telling people that God loves sinners unconditionally, which you've heard from a thousand pulpits, is thoroughly unbiblical. That is a ridiculous thing to imply. That is a ridiculous thing to say to sinners. What happens to the unrepentant sinner when he hears God loves him unconditionally, he has no inclination or desire to repent. God loves me as I am. I'll stay like this and have Jesus. Is that Christianity? Is that the true faith of the Bible? No, it is not. That is not true religion according to the Bible. We can't stand up here in these pulpits. We can't go out in the streets and evangelize. We can't do this to our neighbors and just tell everybody that just, just carte blanche, God loves you unconditionally, and that's just all there is to it. That, that's not the message of the Bible to wicked men. If that's the message of the Bible to wicked men, wicked men are going to stay wicked and try to add Jesus to their lives. 
So we need to get away from this universal sort of love that we're always expressing to the, to the worst of the worst. We need to get away from this. That's not the right way to preach or to evangelize. The Bible demands, it demands it. Listen, it's not a suggestion in the Bible. It's not a good idea in the Bible. It's not a, a little invitation in the Bible. The Bible demands that wicked people repent and believe in Jesus Christ. It demands it. It's not like, hey, that'd be a good idea. It tells us flat out when we hear it, do this. Don't tarry, don't waste any time. Repent of your self-sufficiency. Repent of your sin and put your full trust in Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel, not, hey, God loves you, it's cool, He'll accept you as you are. No, you better repent. You better turn from your sin. And this is out of churches today, is it not? Do we hear this coming from pulpits today? No, all we hear about is the love of God for everyone, unilateral love of God for everyone. There's no call to repentance. Mark Dever said cleverly years ago, and because of that strategy, tares are being swept into churches in mass, and now the churches are full. They have more unbelievers in churches than believers, and then the pastors sit back and wonder why their churches are a bloody mess. And while everyone's sleeping with everyone in the congregation and all these terrible, sinful things are happening, there's all this immorality and wickedness. Why? Because people are not being converted because the actual gospel is not being preached. We're not preaching the gospel. Part of the gospel is repentance. It's a part of it. Jesus himself preached the gospel. Mark 1.15, repent and believe the gospel for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus didn't leave repentance out of his preaching. Why do preachers do it today? Because it's offensive, because it doesn't encourage the seats to be full. Our seats are almost always empty because we preach repentance, but it's part of the true gospel. And our seats are mostly empty today because we have a lot of sick people. My wife is one of them. Apparently, I tried to help her with a back massage and made her 10 times worse which is a good thing for me because I'll probably never be asked to give her another massage. Yeah, this is being recorded. That part will not be in the message. Well, she's not going to go back and watch it anyways. T telling people that God loves them unconditionally, it's just unbiblical. The Bible literally demands that, that we repent of our sin, that we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, right? Acts... 4, 11, and 12, Acts 17, 30, where it's preached there. It, and it, it, again, there's a sense of urgency with the gospel. We are to repent and believe in Jesus immediately. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, which says, what, today is the day of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year. Well, I'll consider these things. No, repent and believe now. That's how we actually preach the holistic true gospel. Eliphaz uses vivid imagery to describe he even uses, this is hilarious, he uses vivid imagery to, to describe man's, uh, wicked man's physical appearance. Look at this text. This is nuts. He uses poetry here. It says, he has covered his face with fat. I interpret that as he has a double chin. He might be talking about me. And he has gathered fat upon his waist. He has a muffin top, apparently. The wicked man basically looks like, according to Eliphaz, boss hog from the Dukes of Hazard. Remember him? Gig, gig, gig. Remember that guy? He was the most annoying guy on TV back in the 70s. He's literally describing his physical appearance here. He's kind of a fat boy. But that's not the literal meaning of the text. It doesn't have to do with muffin tops and double chins. Uh, fat around the 
face and waist. That's, it doesn't, it's not talking about literal fat because the guy's on a pizza diet. In the ancient Middle East, fat was a symbol of wealth. Okay, the fat of the land. You would get fat off the land. You'd get wealthy off of the land. That's that mentality, that ideology. Eliphaz is saying that the wicked man, he gathers wealth and he fattens his barns. He fattens his storehouses with what? The provision of God. But guess what he does? He doesn't give God any thanks. He doesn't even acknowledge God for what he has. There's no thanks. There's no glory to God for what he has. He just keeps getting fat off the land and what have you. And the word gathered also denotes theft, as in the wicked man adds to his fat, right? Adds to his wealth by what? Robbing others of their possessions. In other words, the wicked man can be a kind of swindler, a scammer who, who fattens his accounts off of the possessions and belongings of others. He's a thief, the wicked man is, is what Job says. I would liken him to the greedy sheriff of Nottingham who imposed unaffordable taxes on the people of Nottinghamshire, right? He's like the old sheriff of Nottingham. If you like the uh, Robin Hood story, I certainly do. I know Robin does. I don't know where she's sitting, but I know she's down with it because she likes that stuff. But he's like the, the sheriff of Nottingham. And he says, he says this of the wicked man who gathers all this wealth and fat, especially at the expense of others. He has lived in desolate cities, which can be rendered, he makes cities desolate. Okay, so the idea that because of the wicked man's insatiable, unquenchable greed, he depletes cities of their resources as he builds his own personal empire. It says also, Eliphaz says, he has lived in houses that none should inhabit because they were ready to become heaps of ruin. This was Eliphaz's way of saying the wicked man's fortune and possessions will eventually be destroyed. They will be taken away from him. This is what he's saying. Now, think of the parallel. Since everything Job had was taken away from him, wealth, children, and health, Eliphaz assumes Job is wicked. His losses prove that he had been foolishly warring against God through hidden sin and fattening his wealth through unethical businesses practices? That's, that's what Eliphaz thinks. He's describing Job in the text. Job is without question the alleged wicked man Eliphaz is describing here. In other words, Job is the fat cat. He is the boss hog of the text. Eliphaz further describes what will happen to the wicked man in the next section. Okay, so we've talked about the folly of the wicked man, all the things he does, gathering wealth illicitly and warring against God in these things. He's describing Job. Now we get a further description with the fourth L. This is the fate of the wicked man. This is the, the longest section, the most explicit section. This is 29 through the end, 35. Eliphaz describes the fate of the wicked man in vivid detail, vivid detail. He's using poetry, but it's very clear. He lists seven things that will happen to the wicked man. And of course, each one is paralleled with Job's sad experience, Job's testimony about himself. We'll go through these reasonably quickly. Number one... And, and when I read this sentence, this is a sentence that just is the boil down of the text that, that backs it up. Number one, the wicked man will lose his wealth and possessions. We see this in verse 29. We also saw it in the last verse. 
Eliphaz says, He will not be rich, and his wealth will not endure, nor will his possessions spread over the earth. Okay, so, so what he's saying is whatever the wicked man possesses in terms of wealth will eventually be taken away from him. In other words, he will eventually lose everything he has. And I think what Eliphaz is kind of saying in a way is that we come into this world with nothing and we will leave with nothing. He's saying in a sense, you can't take it with you. You know that phrase. I haven't heard that phrase used in a long time, but some people will say, hey, you can't take it with you. This is what he's saying. Now, some wicked people, they lose everything to calamity while they're alive, right? These losses that that Eliphaz is is talking about here, sometimes they come in the midst of the life of the wicked person. Uh, Calamity strikes, a business deal falls through, a a fire strikes, something happens, and, and then everything that they possess and own is taken away from them. So this can happen during life, I think Eliphaz is implying here. But undoubtedly, he's also saying that the wicked, they will eventually lose everything at death. That's the idea of you can't take it with you. You came in naked, you leave naked. You got nothing when you come in, you got nothing when you leave. That's here in the text. Now, the question we have to ask is this. Remember, because he's paralleling to Job. How is this connected to Job? Well, he lost his wealth, he lost his children, he lost his health. Chapter 1, verses 14 to 19. Chapter 2, verse 7. He's already lost everything. Uh, In fact, the greatest of all the people of the East, chapter 1, verse 3, became a scab-ridden, worm-eaten, transient on an ash heap. Chapter 2, verse 8. Chapter 7, verse 5, right? The wealthiest became the poorest. According to Eliphaz, Job suffered this terrible fate of all these losses, losing all his possessions, losing all his wealth. Why? Because he is wicked and God does not bless the wicked. There's the parallel. Job lost it all. He's describing how the wicked lose it all. They're tied together. Think of just how devastating these statements are against Job and how uh, just unkind and how cruel they are. Number two, the wicked man will go down into darkness and remain there. We see this in verse 30a. Eliphaz puts it like this, he will not depart from darkness. Uh, According to Eliphaz, the wicked man's final destination is Sheol. And once the wicked man goes to Sheol, he says he will not depart. Now, this is partially true. The wicked are judged and put in Sheol. It's a place of the dead, the wicked dead, really. They are put there to await final judgment. So he's right about that in a sense. But he's wrong in that that is not the final destination of the wicked. He says they will never depart from the darkness that resides there, and that is where he is wrong. The wicked will be brought out of Sheol. They will be raised from the dead, right? John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, which speaks to this. Why will they be raised to face final judgment and to ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. They'll be judged again in a final judgment at the great white throne. Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15. So, so he will not depart is partially true in that he will never get out of Sheol and he will transfer from Sheol to the great, right, right, uh, great white throne and then from there to 
the lake of fire, which I always translate as hell. It's like being cast into hell, this place of fiery death and doom. So Eliphaz is partially right. How is this connected to Job? We have to ask this question. Well, Job mistakenly thought he was headed to the land of darkness and deep shadow, never to return. Chapter 10, verse 21. He was speaking of what? Sheol. Sheol is mentioned like eight times in in the book of Job, and it's usually because Job thinks that's where he's going. That's his next and final destination, right? Sheol is the place of the dead, the underworld, chapter 14, verse 13 of Job. Eliphaz, again, Eliphaz believed when Job had said these things, like, I'm going to go down into Sheol, I'm never going to come back. Eliphaz believed that when Job said that, he was basically admitting his guilt and accepting his terrible fate. That's the parallel to Job. Number three, the wicked man loses or will lose his crops. He will lose his bounty. He will lose his harvest. Uh, Verse 30b, Eliphaz puts it like this using poetry, the flame will dry up his shoots. This is uh, kind of similar to verse 29. Uh, The wicked man will not only lose his wealth, his possessions, but he will eventually lose his harvest, says Eliphaz. He says his crops will dry up, which what? Destroys his farms and ruins his livelihood. Again, whatever the wicked man acquires in life will eventually be taken away from him, whether it be a bountiful harvest, whether it be gold and silver, whether it be properties, it doesn't matter. Everything he owns and possesses will either be taken in this life as a judgment against him or taken when he passes away and it'll be given to people who didn't earn it or deserve it, or it'll just be uh, absorbed by the state as probate would be in effect probably back then, certainly as in California. Now, again, how is this information, this, this terrible fate that Eliphaz is describing, how is it connected to Job? Well, Job lost his harvest, right? He lost his harvest. He lost his crops. He lost his grains. He lost all of that, his bountiful harvest to whom? The hungry Sabians, the hungry Chaldeans who raided and destroyed his farms. They even found his hiding places among the thorns and took everything he had grown. Job said this in chapter 5, verse 5. So Eliphaz believed Job was suffering this terrible fate of of, of losing all his harvest. Why? Because he is wicked and God will not bless the wicked. There is the parallel once again. This is like the guy that you're having a conversation with while you're in a lot of pain and he's saying all these terrible things and and he's referring to you, but you're not exactly sure that he's referring to you. But then you say to yourself, why are you saying these terrible things that parallel with my life? I thought you came to encourage me. That's exactly what's happening here. Fourth, the wicked man will be carried away into judgment. This is expressed in verse 30c, Eliphaz poetically says, and by the breath of his mouth, he will depart. Uh, The wicked man will eventually be carried away to face judgment by the breath of whose mouth? The The breath of God's mouth. He's talking about God's mouth. When he says his mouth, that's God's mouth. This wicked man will be carried away to judgment by God's mouth, says Eliphaz. Now, this happens in in two ways. God will either cut the wicked man's life short, 
strike him down with a command and bring him into judgment. This is expressed in a way in Hebrews 9.27 where it says man is appointed to judgment after death. God has throughout history taken wicked men, struck them dead, and then put them right into a judgment scenario. He has done that. So this can happen in that way and or God will command the wicked dead who have already passed away to rise, right, to be resurrected. Why? To face final judgment at the great white throne. John 5, 28 to 29, Revelation 20, 11 to 15. We've already talked about that. So the great question once again is, how is this connected to Job? Well, Job believed he was being judged by God. He expressed this clearly in chapter 12, verse 9. And guess what? He also believed he was about to be carried away to final judgment or to heavenly judgment. He thought, maybe God's, God's judging me now clearly. Maybe He's going to throw me into shield to judge me there. And then maybe He'll even bring me out of that scenario to bring me to heaven to judge me there. This is Job's mentality, his thinking. He expresses this once again in chapter 14, verse 3. He thought he was being judged, was going to be judged, and then was going to end up in final judgment. He said all of this through his poetic responses to his friend. The connection, again, Eliphaz believed that when Job was admitting to these things, saying, I'm being judged, and I'm facing judgment, and I'm going to go through final judgment. That's what it feels like, friends. He thinks that when Job said these things, he was, again, admitting his guilt right, and accepting his fate. He was admitting or saying, I am a wicked man and I need to pay for it. But we know that's not at all what Job was admitting to, not at all. Job said some foolish things in here because that's what emotional pain can do. He wasn't admitting to anything, but Eliphaz believed, oh, he's admitting to it. Look at him. He knows he's guilty and he's saying so because he's under the judgment of God and he's going to face worse judgment. And then fifth, the wicked man will reap what he sows for trusting in empty deceptions. This is expressed poetically in verses 31 through 33. Eliphaz says, Let him not trust in emptiness, deceiving himself, for emptiness will be his payment. It will be paid in full before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like the vine and cast off his blossom like the olive tree. The wicked man trusts in empty deceptions, says Eliphaz. Now, this statement is entirely true. It is entirely true. Just about everything that Eliphaz has said about the wicked man is entirely true. And this one is, is, is just really, really, there's a lot of truth to what he's saying here. Just think of what unbelievers, sinners that are unregenerate, they don't believe in Jesus. They're outside of the church, outside of salvation, outside of the faith. They're wicked people by nature. Think of what they trust in. Do they not trust in empty deceptions? Of course they do. They trust in kings. They trust in presidents. And politicians, boy, do we see that right now. Biden's going to save the soul of the nation. People are not just voting for Biden. They're placing their trust in Biden to save them. And there's been a great many conservatives who have done the same thing with, with, you know, with Trump because Trump is viewed as a savior as well. Wicked people trust in other people. They trust in kings. They trust in politicians. These are empty deceptions. They trust in riches, do they not? 
They trust in their possessions. Of course they do. They trust in their health. As long as I feel good, I'm on top of the world. They trust in religion. They trust in good deeds. They trust in being a good person. Thinking that these things that I've mentioned will either save them or make them righteous. What are these things? Trusting in any of these things. They are empty deception spun by the devil to give people a sense of meaning and a sense of, uh, a sense of assurance that they're okay and going to be all right and that somehow maybe they'll go to heaven. They're just empty deceptions, riches and politicians and all these things. My pen fell apart. They trust in all of these things. Eliphaz says those who, who put their trust in empty deceptions like these what? They will be paid in full. They will receive full payment for trusting in those deceptions. And he expresses it like this. Their branch will not be green. He's using what? He's using farming analogies here. The, their branch will not be green. Their unripe grape will be shaken off and their blossom will be cast off. What was he saying here? This was his way of saying that those who trust in empty deceptions will not have a fruitful life. Your life is not going to be truly fruitful if you're trusting in these other things. And we know that it ends in destruction for those who trust in empty deceptions. And, and this is really probably one of the most penetrating and devastating things that Eliphaz has said in the text. And we have to ask, how is this connected to Job? What's the connection? Because he's not talking about, you know, some make-believe guy named Fred. He's talking about Job. What's the connection? According to Eliphaz, was Job not trusting in an empty deception? He says he was trusting in an empty deception. He said it back in verses 5 and 6. What was his empty deception? The idea that he was blameless. The idea that he was experiencing undeserved suffering, right? This is expressed in chapter 9, verses 20 through 22. Job says over and over, I'm a blameless man and I'm suffering undeserved suffering. I haven't done anything to bring this about. And to Eliphaz and to Bildad and to Zophar, that was an empty deception, empty words, a ridiculous thing. Why? Rewards and retribution. That's not the way God operates. That's not God's economy. If you do good, you get good. If you do bad, you get bad. Therefore, Job, you have to be wicked. You are merely, you are merely um, reaping what you have been sowing with this false theology and this idea that you're not, you haven't been sinning. You're lying to us. You know you've been sinning. That's why you're suffering. This is how it's connected to Job. And, and according to Eliphaz, Job was clinging to this deception that he's, if this is undeserved suffering, I haven't done anything wrong. He's clinging to this, to this deception and that therefore resulted in Job getting paid back. He was now what? Reaping what he had sown. He was reaping a harvest of fruitlessness expressed through what? The loss of his wealth, the loss of his children, the loss of his health. And this is just, these are damning, devastating words from one friend to another. And then the, one of the worst things here is probably the next one in number six. I mean, five, it's like it's, it's crescendoing. It's getting worse and worse. Five was terrible, but six is really, really bad as well. The wicked man will lose people he loves. Come on, man, you know he's talking about Job. 
He says this in verse 34a, and he says it like this through his poetry, for the company of the godless is barren. The wicked man will eventually find himself alone, says Eliphaz. He will lose the the people he loves, maybe the spouse, maybe his children, some loved ones, some friends, etc. We know that at death, the wicked man will lose everyone he loves. If there's anyone left in his life, he will lose them all then. It's important that we understand that there are no reunions in hell. There is no thanksgiving in hell. There is no Christmas in hell. There are no birthdays in hell. There are no parties in hell. There is no family time in hell. There are no supper tables. You know where we gather with our, with our family, there's no supper tables in hell. There are no movie nights in hell. There are no vacations in hell. And guess what? There's no Disneyland in hell. There is only fire, there is only intense suffering, there is only worms and the sound of gnashing teeth, there is only deep darkness, there is only pain, there is only anguish and despair and ultimate loneliness. In hell, the wicked man's company will be barren. This is what he is teaching. This is the fate of the wicked, this is the fate, he says, of the godless. They will be alone. And sometimes the wicked man loses people he loves while he's still living. He doesn't lose it all. I mean, yes, he loses everything at death when he goes to hell, when he goes to judgment in hell. But, you know, sometimes the wicked man loses the people that he loves while he's still alive. Things happen. We have losses, right? But guess what? The thing that's not completely accurate about Eliphaz's theology here is that the righteous also lose people they love. Sometimes their lives are barren because they lose someone they love. I mean, this can happen, right? We lose loved ones all the time. We lose friends all the time. This is uh, one of the sad parts of life. But Eliphaz thinks the wicked are the real losers. God takes people from them because they are wicked It's a type of judgment against them. That's what he's saying. And of course, we have to ask the question, and we already know the answer. How is this connected to Job? He lost his children when a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of of their house, and it fell on them, killing them, right? Remember chapter 1, verse 19. So according to Eliphaz, the tragic loss of Job's ten children proved that he is wicked. His not having family around him anymore, his barrenness, his relational barrenness proved that he was wicked and that God was judging him and taking away the people he loved. Also, it's really interesting, Eliphaz appears to be warning Job in another way here. He's not just slamming him for being wicked and losing his kids. It was as if he's warning him that, look, Job, you are about to lose us three as your friends. If you want to keep lying to yourself and lying to us, talking about how your suffering is undeserved, talking about how you're blameless. We know you're hiding sin. Look, we're not going to tolerate that much longer. If you want to go ahead and keep living out that empty deception, you're going to end up doing it without us. That's also sort of in the text here. There's a warning here, but I think at this point, Job is probably thinking, go ahead and take a hike. 
because they weren't helping him. But these guys were a liability. Sometimes we have friends in our lives that are just a liability, and we got to turn them loose. He was probably like, you know what? Don't let the door hit you on the butt. Go ahead and go back to wherever you came from. I know you walked 100 miles. I hope it takes 200 miles for you to get back. He was probably fine with these doorknobs leaving him. So the wicked man, he will lose people he loves. That's his fate. And then lastly, number seven, the wicked man will be destroyed by fire. He expresses this through poetry in verses 34b and 35. He says, and fire consumes the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit. Uh, the wicked man will suffer the fate of consuming fire, says Eliphaz. In Hebrews 12, 29 actually refers to God as a consuming fire. Isn't that interesting? So Eliphaz is using judgment language. Hebrews 12.29 is using judgment language. When God comes against the wicked in judgment, He is like a consuming fire that destroys a hillside, destroys a city, destroys a nation. His fiery judgment consumes His adversaries. It says in Psalm, 93, or 9, uh, Psalm 97 verse 3, Cameron read Psalm 97 earlier. That's why I had him read it. His Fiery judgment consumes his adversaries. Again, we have to ask, how is this judgment language, this being consumed by God and His judgment and wrath being burned up, how is this connected to Job? Well, tent, the word tent there sometimes refers to a person's life. We learned this back in chapter 4, verse 21. But in this context, it has a different meaning. Did Job lose anything to fire? Yes. He lost his sheep. He lost servants to the fire of God which fell from heaven. Chapter 1, verse 16. Tent, therefore, refers to Job's sheep and servants. They were destroyed by a bolt of lightning, right? That's the fire of God. It's a lightning bolt. Uh, this was a sign of God's fiery judgment against Job, says Eliphaz. See the parallel there? Now we move to verse 35, our last verse. Eliphaz ends his, and I would call it a scathing discourse. This is brutal language. I didn't think Eliphaz had it in him. Usually it's Zophar the gopher who's really mean, and Bildad's pretty mean too. But man, Eliphaz here is just, he's in the lead now on meanness. He ends his scathing discourse with an illustration drawn from an unborn child, from childbirth, really. He says, the wicked, they conceive trouble and give birth to evil, and their womb prepares deceit. In other words, evil originates within them because of their wicked nature, because of their love of wickedness, their love of sin. And what is Eliphaz doing? He is implying very clearly that Job is the wicked person of the entire text and that he was suffering God's judgment against his wicked, godless lifestyle. That's the end point in verse 35. And we can begin to close and wrap up. Pretty, pretty heavy text, huh? 
It's all judgment language, really. We have to ask this question, because I like to ask these questions. It helps me process. Is Eliphaz's assessment of the wicked accurate? He has said a lot about the wicked. He's talked about their fate. He's talked about their foolishness. He's talked about how they war against God, all these things, right? He's talked about their fears, the fears they deal with on a daily basis. Is his assessment of the wicked accurate? Absolutely, it is. The wicked encounter the fears Eliphaz has described in verses 20 through 24. The fear of pain. The fear of losing what they love. A fear of death. In fact, a fear of death is probably the one that the wicked wrestle with the most. They're constantly worried about just sudden death. They're uncertain about what happens next. Many of them, because God has given a conscience to every man, woman, and child, they sense that it's not going to be good for them because their conscience testifies against them. So wicked people, yes, they have the same fears. And, and some fear pain more than any of the other things. Some fear death more. I mean, there's variations of it. But they're all present in the lives of wicked people. And guess what? Eliphaz is right. These fears, what? Fill them with distress and anguish, which can and do at times prevail against them like a king ready for battle. And what do they do in response to all this pain, all this anguish, all these fears? What do they do? They turn to dope. They turn to booze. They turn to sexual immorality. They turn to a million other vices to mitigate their distress and to mask their anguish. You see the parallels there? This is what wicked people do. They literally war against God and run from their own fears, and they run to the bottle, they run to the pills, they run to sex, they run to all these vices. This is what they do. I know I can be like Eliphaz in that I can say from personal experience, that's what wicked people do, because when I was a wicked man, that's what I did. That's what I did. And the wicked, they not only, they not only encounter those fears, as Eliphaz has, has, has wonderfully described, they also exhibit all the folly that Eliphaz described in 25 through 28. They foolishly war against God through their sin and suppression of the truth and unrighteousness. They amass wealth thinking that this is their purpose in life. He who dies with the most toys wins. No, he who dies with the most toys has no toys in hell. They refuse, absolutely wicked people, no matter what they get their hands on, no matter what they possess, no matter what God gives them, they refuse all the time to give God thanks and glory for His provision. They don't even acknowledge God in these things. They're like Nebuchadnezzar. They go out on the veranda and say, look at what I have created. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Became a wildebeest out in the field, <clears throat> eating straw. God's judgment hit him right then. What do wicked people do? Eliphaz says here, part of their folly is that they fatten themselves financially, even at the expense of others. They exploit people to fatten themselves financially. They use and abuse others to do this. They greedily devour resources to the point of depletion. 
If you don't believe me on that point, try to find some dang toilet paper at your store. You can't even find that now. And people would say, well, it's because they're afraid. Of course they're afraid. Because they're wicked. They're terrified of a virus. And somehow I think toilet paper is going to save them. I don't get it. They just... They just hoard and amass and take. They don't have any concern for John. They don't, they don't care about Carly. They don't care about Ian. They don't care about others. They take and they take and they take. They're like a selfish spouse. There's nothing worse than being married to a selfish spouse. Ask Rachel. She's married to one at least two weeks of every month. They mass, they take, they take. They foolishly do all of these things. They're in their own little universe. All that matters is them. And our whole culture, it, it caters to the self. It caters to these little idol gods called wicked people. And the wicked, they experience the fate Eliphaz described in verses 29 through 35. They will eventually lose their wealth maybe even in life, definitely a death. They will go down into darkness. They will lose their bounty. They will lose their livelihood. They will be carried away to face divine judgment. They will undoubtedly reap what they have sown for trusting in empty deceptions. They will lose the people they love. They will be tormented by fire in hell. Everything that Eliphaz has said of the wicked there in the fate is completely true and accurate. Really, everything that he said about the wicked is accurate. Now we must ask a second question as we really wrap up. Is Eliphaz's assessment of Job accurate? Because remember, that's the one he's paralleling to here. Was he accurate about Job? I would say absolutely not. He was right about some of Job's experience. Job was going through some stuff, but he was wrong about why these things happened to Job. It wasn't because Job was wicked. It wasn't because Job was under God's judgment like Eliphaz believed. Job was blameless. Job was upright. Job did fear God. Job did on a daily basis. He turned away from evil. This is expressed right at the onset of this book. In chapter 1, verse 1, it leaves no doubt Job's suffering was undeserved, literally. He had done nothing to, to merit God's judgment, to, to earn God's judgment against his life. He was not a wicked man. He was a God-fearing, God-loving man. His suffering was undeserved. Now, his friends just didn't believe him because in their system it can't happen. But his suffering was undeserved like that of Christ. God worked through Job's undeserved suffering to teach Satan an all-creational lesson. God worked through Christ's undeserved suffering to secure the forgiveness we need. Why? Because we are wicked people. We are wicked people. We have foolishly warred against God through sin. We have foolishly suppressed the truth in our unrighteousness. We have 
foolishly trusted in empty deceptions, false religion, good deeds, wealth, health, elections, politicians. We have done these things, have we not? He's not just talking about Job, and really Job hadn't even done these things. He's not talking about just just random wicked people. He's talking about really all men and women and children. He's talking about all of humanity here in a sense in this text, because all of humanity falls short and has failed to what? Glorify God. We have all, we are all foolishly, we have all foolishly warred against God through sin and these sorts of things. We trust in ridiculous things. Even Christians today put their trust in foolish things, in empty deceptions. You know what Peter cried to a multitude of of people when he preached his first sermon, which was probably one of the best sermons anyone could ever preach? You know what he said to thousands of people that were gathered at Solomon's portico? He said, save yourselves from the punishment coming on this wicked people. Acts 2.40, Peter knew that the world is full of wicked people who are going to be punished by God and suffer the fate that Eliphaz eloquently described. Save yourselves. If we will repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, God will what? He will forgive our sins. He will rescue us from this punishment. He will rescue us from this judgment. He will make us new people, people who love and obey God. But He doesn't promise an easy life. But we can rest assured that the losses and suffering we have to endure and deal with are not coming from His judgment, but somehow will result in our own sanctification and transformation, making us like Jesus. It's not a judgment against us if we suffer losses. It's only Christians that understand that. Wicked people never understand that. And yet if we refuse to repent and believe in Jesus, our fate is doomed. It is precisely what Eliphaz has described. That's our fate. We will face judgment. We will reap what we have sown. We will be consumed by God's wrath in the fires of hell. Today, my friends, today is the day of salvation. It's not not tomorrow. It's not next week. It's not next month. It's not next year. It's not five years from now. It's not ten years from now. I've told you the story about how I knew a guy and I was really preaching the gospel to him over time. And and then I don't know how we got into the tribulation period. That's one of the dumbest things you could ever talk to, talk about with an unbeliever. And we got into that. And guess what he saw that period as? Seven years of grace where he could actually believe and repent. I mean, that's, that's the wicked mind. It wants to delay and put things off. Because it's terrified, it doesn't know how to live without sin. Well, that's something that God teaches us, isn't it? How to live without sin. In fact, He gives us a propensity to live without sin. But in this guy's mind, I don't know how we got on that stupid period, but he's like, well, then I'll just wait till then. Because there's going to be a lot of people that get saved then. I'm saying, yeah, but like one-third of the world is killed, destroyed by the sword right up front. You're probably one of them. Better repent and believe right now. He's like, well, I got time. Everyone thinks they have time. Everyone thinks they have time. Today is the day 
of salvation. Not tomorrow, not next week, not a year from now. We are to, the Bible commands us. It doesn't suggest, it doesn't invite, it doesn't woo. It commands that we repent and believe in Jesus right now at this very moment. That's what it commands us to do. God is calling men throughout the world to repent right now. talks about an Acts. And if we are already trusting in Jesus by grace through faith, how wonderful is it that what God has done for us? He has delivered us from fear. He has delivered us from folly. He has delivered us from a frightening fate, hasn't He? He has. He has. Everything that, that Eliphaz talks about, it's, it's not applicable to us because we have been pulled out of that and rescued by our wonderful Redeemer. And what does that incline us to do? To thank Him, to live our lives for Him, to worship Him. I mean, this is terrifying text, but it shouldn't be terrifying to me because I'm in Christ and I am safe. I've been tucked away in Christ like those eight people were tucked away into that ark. And that storm of God's wrath came upon the world and destroyed everything. We are in Christ. We are safe. Shouldn't that lead us and cause us to rejoice? It absolutely should. We should give thanks to Christ. We should live our lives for His glory. He's entitled to that. We owe Him that much.